If you have your Bible, open to the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. It is uh, on page uh, 530 of that Bible uh, that is provided for you. And we're going to be in chapter 7 of Isaiah. <clears throat> the, uh, the prophet Isaiah is considered to be one of the, the major prophets of the Old Testament. And then there's minor prophets like Jonah. Now, the, the titles of major and minor do not indicate that the contents of them are better than the other. Uh, it is simply to the effect of how large the book is versus others. But I would say into what Isaiah contains and what it explains to us that it is probably one of the most significant Old Testament books. What it entails and what it uh, explains to us in the prophecies that are there in Isaiah I think are some of the most significant passages in the Old Testament Scriptures. And so this morning we're going to focus in on chapter 7 as we continue our study through the, the prophet Isaiah. And today we're going to talk about the promised sign that is given here in chapter 7. What is the best way to learn something? What's the best way to learn something? Some of us, some of us in the room, maybe you learn better in just uh, hearing something, or maybe you do better in seeing it, uh, and maybe you do better in writing things down, and so this is an encouragement for you to take notes this morning, uh, as you might remember better in the next few hours or days if you write down some of the contents of what you hear this morning. Studies show that in really getting involved with something, really having an experience with something, really being engaged with it or doing it is the best way to learn. That it's experiences that really help us and, and clarify what is, what is the right way to do something or a process of doing something. And being really involved with it helps us do that. And God has been teaching us this way. He has been teaching humanity for thousands of years using this method of giving us experience or giving us an event in which clarifies a truth. He has brought about events and experiences, some seemingly maybe small, some maybe very large through our lives, in order to teach us a spiritual lesson. Some events through history have been things like maybe the birth of a child uh, that was maybe promised or prophesied about, or political maneuvers, military maneuvers, or, and or historical events that take place. Now, what we have inside of chapter 7 of Isaiah is all of those things. All of those events are happening inside of chapter 7, and God is using all of these avenues at the same time to communicate a, a spiritual truth to us. Now, who is able to do such a thing as that? as using the birth of a child, using political powers and maneuvers, military maneuvers, historical events, all to teach us a spiritual lesson. I would say it is only the omnipotent, the omniscient, and the omnipresent God that can do such a thing as that. Last week we saw Isaiah had an experience himself. He had an experience with the holy God. In chapter 6 we saw him standing before the Lord in, first of all, a distant standing, and then he was brought close to God by the power of God, and it made a lasting impression upon him. Isaiah was captivated by the Lord. Captivated. He had a new understanding of who the Lord was. He had a new understanding of himself, and he also had a new standing with God. That he didn't have to be at a distance anymore, but because of the cleansing power of the Lord, he is brought close. And what did this motivate him to do? Serve. He was motivated to serve not out of fear, 
like he was in the beginning of chapter 6. No, he is motivated out of love and with the appreciation of God's work in him. That God had done something in him, created something new in him, and he has a new sense of God's holiness, a new sense of God's beauty, which then created obedient actions, even in the midst of very difficult circumstances, situations, and other earthly experiences that he has. Now contrast that idea of being really captivated by the Lord with what I would label as conventional Christianity, which has taught the idea of, well, you don't, go, you don't want to go to hell, do you? So you better believe in Jesus, which creates a people who only want to avoid burning and not a people who actually love the Lord or are captivated by the Lord. They are not ones who will look to the, Lord's, uh, to the Lord for guidance, for sustenance, or for peace, but they will look to Him when things are not going well. They will treat Him as though He is some holy vending machine or some sort of genie in a bottle that you can conjure up at your dire need so that you can get what you desperately need or want. These are not ones that have been captivated by the Lord. True Christianity is being captivated by the Savior of the soul. Like Isaiah, captivated to the extent that serving Him brings them great joy and great peace, and all the while ignoring or disregarding sinful things, evil choices that would bring shame to the name of their Savior. And this is what Isaiah is doing in real time, in a real way, in a real life. He's exercising real faith. Real saving faith in God is seeing Him as the all-sufficient ally that He is. This is what Isaiah has experienced, and this is what Isaiah is going to call King Ahaz to do, to trust God. This is what chapter 7 is about, trusting the Lord. This is essentially what the message of the gospel is. It's seeing God as your all-sufficient ally and not trusting in yourself or others to save you, but trusting in Him alone. This is the heart of what the gospel message is. Trust in the Lord. Isaiah is really a carefully crafted book in how it's constructed. And again, even today, as, as scholars look back at the book of Isaiah, they're, they're amazed at how it is structured and put together and just the, the linguistics that are involved in it. Some theologians would say and call this section of Scripture 7 through 11 the book of Emmanuel because it's a book inside of a book that we have. It's interesting how really chapter 7 starts because, well, it comes after 6, right? That's pretty awesome. You know, Isaiah can, can count. Uh, by the way, uh, chapter and verses didn't come along later until like uh, I think the 1600s, okay? So they didn't exist whenever this was written. But the construction here from 6 to 7 is that it seems to be that there's a skipping over a king from chapter 1, verse 1. That we have King Uzziah, King Jotham, and then King Ahaz. But Jotham is not mentioned between 6 and 7. We just go from Uzziah to, uh, to Ahaz. So what I think is intriguing here is the picture that's being painted in skipping over Jotham. In chapter 6, if you're there in chapter 7, you can look back one verse to, to verse 13 of chapter 6, and we're told that there's going to be a cutting down of the nation of Judah, but there's going to be a remnant, a holy seed that comes up from this stump. 
chapter 6, it ends with a hope. A hope that the promise given to David and the lineage of David, it would be sustained even though there's a cutting down of the nation and even of the line of David, but there's still going to be that holy seed that will grow out of that. Even though Judah will be destroyed, there's still hope. And seven, it opens with the story of how God is going to keep His promises in spite of David's descendants acting in wickedness and evil and not, being, uh, not trusting God. So think of 7 through 11 as proof being given of how trustworthy God is to His covenant promises. This is what the, the book, if you will, of, of uh, <clears throat> Emmanuel is pointing to us. We are going to break this chapter down into really two sections, each containing one of the two messages that Isaiah brings to Ahaz as the king. And inside of both of these, there's kind of two points I want to make from this. So let's look at the first nine verses, one through nine, which is the the first message that Isaiah brings to Ahaz. Look at verse one. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but it could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in a league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees, as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, meet Ahaz. You and Shira Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool by the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two uh, smoldering stumps of firebrands at a fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria and Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of uh, Tebiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass for the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is risen. As within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people and the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Well, the first thing that I think we discover from these first nine verses is in verses one and two, and that is that crisis reveals belief. Crisis reveals belief. Uh, the backdrop of this of the situation is really important here to, to really gain some context of what's happening. Rezin is the king of Syria, also known as Aram in this passage. And Pekah is the king of the northern kingdom, Israel. Also, they are referred to as Ephraim, as we see in the text. And these two kings that are there, Rezin and Pekah, they, uh, they made an alliance against the superpower at the time, Assyria. And what they were wanting, what they were demanding from Judah, was that Judah be a part of that alliance. Well, Ahaz, king of Judah, refuses to join them. And when this happened, these other two kingdoms, they vow to then come in and invade Judah, invade Jerusalem, destroy the city, destroy Judah, kill Ahaz, replace him with their own king. And this is all happening, and this is an important year, 735 B.C. Write that down, 735 B.C. 
Now notice these, these two verses here, verses 1 and 2. It speaks of this situation in past tense. Isaiah is recording what has already taken place and how this all went down through history. So what we have in chapter 7 is a historical narrative being given to us, but it's with a purpose. It is pointing us to how we should think, how we should act as a people ourselves. There was really in this moment a national crisis for Judah, and this crisis it was centered around what is the king of Judah going to do in this crisis? What is the decision he is going to make? Is he going to do something? Is he not going to do something? And this is the scenario we have. So what has Ahaz, <clears throat> what was Ahaz going to do in the midst of this crisis? This national crisis, this physical crisis of these two nations invading, it reveals what had already been invading the heart of this king. What was already there. The physical reveals the spiritual. And this is true for us. The physical situation oftentimes reveals what's spiritually there. God brings us into crisis for the purpose of proving His faithfulness and our weakness. His faithfulness, our weakness. He brings moments of hopelessness into our lives so that we learn to trust Him more. But Ahaz isn't trusting God. He won't trust God. He won't trust in His provision. If you look at verse 2, it says, The heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as trees, as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They were unsettled. He was terrified. He felt out of control. The people felt out of control. Why? Because he was trusting in himself. And trusting in ourselves is one of the worst places we can be spiritually. Trusting in ourselves. The mentality of pull yourself up by your bootstraps seems to be a pretty common theme, especially, you know, as Americans, right? Like, this is who we are. We're kind of taught that. It's practiced in us. And so people, they trust in their own intellect. They trust in their own deeds. They trust in their hard work. They trust in their talents. They trust in their skill sets. They trust in their financial portfolios. They trust in their underground bunkers or their food supplies or their ammo stockpiles. They trust in all of these things. And we can go on and make a list longer and longer and longer about what people trust in. But one thing they don't trust in is the Lord. What are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? This is most clearly revealed to us in a moment of crisis. In a moment of crisis or maybe severe suffering, it's revealed to us what are we really trusting in. God brings crisis our way in order to reveal to us what it is that we are trusting in. And sometimes He brings to our life extreme suffering in order to remove all things that we were trusting in before when we would not trust Him. Now this might sound like an unloving thing for God to do, to bring, to bring such maybe extreme suffering or crisis into your life. Maybe you would think that this is an unloving thing for God to do, but the only reason why you would think that is because you think that things or people are comparable to God and they are not. We saw last week in chapter 6 that the Lord is what? Holy, holy, holy. We, we sang about it this morning. This is who God is. He is, he is not to be compared to things or people. There's no one like Him in all the universe. He is truly the most valuable object or person that exists. 
And crisis should cause us to throw ourselves at the feet of this Savior, this God, that we would throw ourselves at His feet, recentering our hearts upon what truly is the most beautiful, what truly is the most valuable, honorable, and holy being in the universe. This is what needs to happen in the moment of crisis, in the moment of suffering. The crisis that we face and maybe you're in one even today, it will uncover what is believed in our hearts about God. What do you really believe about God? Let crisis come. Let suffering come, and then you'll discover what it is. What do you really believe about Him? Do we believe Him to be incomparable to others? Do we believe Him to be more powerful than anything, person, or nation? Do we believe that He has the authority to command me to do or to not do something? Ahaz, he is faced with a national crisis, but also a personal crisis, crisis that he's having. It's not just in a physical sense that these things are happening, but there's a crisis of belief, a spiritual crisis that is happening. What is he going to do? Crisis reveals that. If you look at th- verses 3 through 9 in the second half of this, we find our second point, and that is that the Lord announces, assures, and admonishes, and, and does this to Ahaz. He announces his presence to Ahaz, he assures him that the enemy will fail, and he admonishes Ahaz to have faith in him alone. This chapter, as well as really several others in Isaiah, show us that God is never passive. He's never idle. He is never a bystander watching a wreck happen, only wishing He could do something about it. He is not rooting just for for merely proper outcomes. He brings them to pass. He is the sovereign Lord over history, which means that He decides what will occur on His stage in His story. I don't know how long you've been reading your Bible, but hopefully long enough for you to realize that it's not about you. It has never been about you. It has always been about who. You can answer that. The Lord God. It is about Him. It's His story. It's His stage. And in verse 3, Isaiah is told to go and find Ahaz. Go find him. Now you would think probably the easiest place to find him would be, well, probably where he lives, the palace, right? But this is not what God tells him to do. He tells him to go find Ahaz in a very exact location. And this exact location is the weakest point of the city. It is the water supply. Isaiah is told to take his son, Shira Jeshubab, Jeshub, you know, you got it, uh, which means, and maybe in your Bible we have this note there, a remnant shall return. A remnant shall return. This is what his name means. God is sending his prophet to the king with a visual aid of sorts to help the king physically see and make the connection that God is going to do what he promised to do. God is going to fulfill it. And so what we have here is God intervening with the king at at the most vulnerable of moments so he would then encourage and bring ensure strength. If Ahaz would simply have faith. Ahaz was trying to devise a plan to save himself. This is why he's out there at the, at the, uh, the point of weakness. He's trying to figure out, how do I protect the city? How do I protect the nation? 
How do I preserve myself? He's making a plan. Now, plans are not evil in and of themselves. The Bible tells us all the time to make plans, that plans are a good thing. But what is evil is believing that you don't need God because you made a plan. That's evil. That's sinful. To think, well, I don't need God because I've made a plan. And my plan's going to work. I mean, I've went through every scenario. I've, I've examined everything financially, everything physically. I've, I've examined everything personally. It's going to work. Well, how does that usually work out for us? In verses 4 through 6, God tells Ahaz that he knows the plot. He knows what these two small nations are going to do. He knows the plan to kill Ahaz, to replace Ahaz. He knows the plan. Their plan was intending to end the lineage of David, that they would put their own king in place, and, and they would have their own, if you will, holy seed. But what does God say to their plan? Look at verses 7 through 9. What does he simply tell them? He gives them a very simple, but I would say sovereign answer. And it is simply this. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. It's very simple, straight to the point, but it's a sovereign answer. Not going to happen. It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. And when God decrees it shall not come to pass, then it will not happen. If the Lord was not sovereign over all peoples or all nations or all situations, then the Lord could only say, I hope it doesn't happen, or I'll try to do my best to make sure that it doesn't happen. But because He is who He is, this decree is certain. In Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, it tells us this, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. There's a saying that's out there that man makes plans and God laughs. That's very true. These two nations, these two kings, they were conspiring against Judah. They were conspiring really against God and God's plan. And what does God say about their plan? Not going to happen. Not going to happen. It has no chance of succeeding. And why is God so certain that these plans of these two nations, these two kings, will fail? Why is he so certain about this? Because God promised that the lineage of David would last, and out of that line there would come the Holy Seed, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And this promise that God gives Ahaz and Isaiah, it is contingent upon God's previous, previous promises. So he's not just decreeing something now and it's going, to, it's going to take off from here. No, he is just reassuring what has already been said. This is a promise that is contingent upon other promises. If you want to disprove God, then all you have to do is prove that his word is no good. Prove that it's wrong. Prove that he is not faithful to his promises. Prove that he is a liar and you prove he is not God. It's that simple. All of what's promised here the destruction of these two nations and the elimination of these kings is as certain as the sun coming up in the morning. Now, now maybe this morning you watched the sun come up and, and you stood and you looked at the beauty of the sunrise, but I doubt that you thought for one moment, oh, I hope it comes up this morning. I, 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 I don't know of anybody that has had that thought, like, oh, I hope the sun comes up. 
I don't know if you went to bed last night, you're like, oh, Lord, please let the sun come up today, I mean, tomorrow, Lord, please. We've probably never prayed that prayer. Why? Because it's a certainty. It's how God has devised things and set things in motion, and we know that it just, it, it's going to naturally happen. We should, think, we should think the same thing about God and His promises, that they will happen. They are that natural, that consistent. These nations and kings are as nothing before the immensity of God. So he promises, if you look right here in verse 8, he promises that in just 65 years they will be so decimated that they will no longer be nations. Both of them, no longer nations. Write this number down, 732 B.C., In 732 B.C., three years later, we're in B.C., right? So you go down, not up, right? So so 732, three years later, Syria, or Aram, was crushed. Israel's northern territories was lost in 734 B.C., one year later. And by 722 B.C., the nation of Israel came to an end, and then by, write this number down to 669 B.C., 65 years after this prophecy, they were too shattered to even be recognized as a people, according to verse 8. This all happened. This is history. How consistent is God? How certain is God? That certain. Another thing that happens with Ahaz is that God admonishes him. He warns him. In verse 9, he says, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Or another way that you could think about this is, you will live by faith or you will not live at all. What is faith? Maybe your mind jumps to a Scripture verse and you think, oh, well, this is the definition of faith from Scripture. Like, yes, that, that's true. Let me help you with that definition of faith a little bit further. It is the intellect the feeling and will converging into complete trust of the Lord. That's what faith is. The intellect, the feeling, and the will converging to a place of complete trust. It's knowing what is true, feeling the impact of that truth, and then embracing the new desire that is in you toward that truth. You know the passage out of James 2.19, right? Where it says, demons believe and shudder. Are you familiar with that verse? They believe that, yes, Jesus is real, but that is not a saving belief for them. Belief in Jesus is not some mere intellectual assent where you just know some stuff about Him. Like, he's, like He has the back of a baseball card. You know His stats. Some of you are like, oh, what's a baseball card? Maybe I'm too old. Um, you know, you know things about him like, well, he's the son of God, he was born of a virgin, he, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross for sinners, he rose from the grave three days later. Like, you know the stats, you know the things, you know who he is. But real saving belief in Jesus is knowing those things to be true, feeling the weight of those things to be true, and then pursuing that truth with repentance and a desire to pursue holiness. I want you to think about the chair in which you're sitting in right now. It has four legs, hopefully. 
It has four legs, which makes the design of it more comfortable. Hopefully not too comfortable where you fall asleep, but comfortable enough where you can pay attention and, and you feel as though you are at rest and your full weight is in that chair. Now think about that same chair as only having two legs. And you came in this morning and you see a room full of two-legged chairs. And you have to choose one. Are you going to be happy to sit in that thing? Probably not. Probably not. It doesn't matter which two that you take out, it's still going to be a very uncomfortable chair to sit in. Are you going to trust that chair? Are you going to sit in that chair, put your full weight in that chair? Are you going to kind of sit in it and like have this straddle thing like, okay, all right, see, I'm sitting. Of course not. You're not trusting the chair. You're, you're really trusting yourself in that. You're not going to plant your full weight into that chair. And maybe you have faith in Jesus like that chair. You have kind of two things, like kind of two legs that he stands on. Maybe you see him as a historical person, but you don't really believe that he was God in the flesh. Or maybe you you believe he was God in the flesh, he was a historical person, but you think he's not really capable of doing anything for you. Maybe you're too broken, you're too lost, you're you're too whatever, and you think there's no way that he can help me, there's no way he he can fix me. And there's several combinations, comparisons we can make with this analogy, but the point I want you to see is that real saving faith in Jesus Christ is when you put your full trust and weight into him. Trusting that he is fully capable, able, and qualified to save you from your sins. Just as that chair is currently carrying your weight right now, so must Jesus carry the full burden, the full weight of your sin and shame. Believing that you can carry the weight of your sin or you are capable of taking care of yourself reveals that you don't live by faith. You don't trust Him. God loves to be trusted. He loves it. He loves to prove Himself trustworthy. And an example of this is out of of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. It's the story of the centurion that, that comes to Jesus. He has, a, he, has a, he has a servant that is dying, that is in terrible health, and he comes to Jesus asking if he would heal him. And Jesus responds with, yes, I'll go with you to your house and, and, and I'll heal him. But the centurion stops Jesus and says, you don't need to come. You don't need to come to my house. The only thing you need to do is give the command and he will be healed. <laughs> and then Jesus says something in verse 10. It says, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him. Notice it doesn't say the centurion. But to those that were there, those that were experiencing this moment, he is teaching a spiritual lesson. He says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. The centurion responded in true faith, real faith. It was intellectual, it was emotional, and it was willing to do whatever Jesus wanted. He trusted completely, fully in the power of Jesus to sustain, to provide and to heal, he demonstrates what real faith is. Here in our passage, God is telling Ahaz, treat me as relevant, trust me, or you will become irrelevant. Ahaz was, was scared of losing what he had. He was scared of losing the city, losing the nation, really losing his own power. 
And if Ahaz does not have faith in the Lord, he will be wiped out just like these other kings, just like these other nations. The Bible teaches us that we are saved by faith. It tells us that the righteous one will live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4, also Paul picks up on that in Romans 1.17. If Ahaz doesn't repent of his self-trust and put his faith in the only one who can save him, then he will be under God's righteous judgment. Let's look at the next message that Isaiah brings to Ahaz. In verses 10 through 17, says again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord God, your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the, to the, test, to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day of Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Here in this section we see the promised sign of God. Ahaz, he is urged to ask for a sign. Ask for a sign, Ahaz. Notice the wording that's here in verse 10, where it uses this phrase, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. This is not an audible voice that's happening to Ahaz directly. This is coming from the Lord to Isaiah to the king. Isaiah, he is just merely the mouthpiece that God is using He's not the one trying to manipulate the situation or get the king to do or not do something. He is only communicating the truth of God. And Ahaz has been told by God through the prophet to ask anything that will prove that God will come through. But he refuses. He won't. I believe this right here once again proves just how long-suffering God is with sinners. How patient is he with those who refuse to put faith in him? How kind and how generous is our God to people who want nothing to do with him? How loving is our God? I think this is displayed here for us. In verse 12, Ahaz, he, he gives a response to this, this request to ask anything, ask any kind of sign, Ahaz. He gives a response. What does he say? I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Ahaz presents a false humility here by saying, I'm not going to test the Lord. He's essentially quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. This was really simply a veil of piety that he was using. He uses Scripture to then justify his blatant disobedience to God. Scripture to justify his evil actions. So let me ask you the question, do you do this? Do you do this? Do you look for loopholes in God's Word so that you don't have to fulfill other areas of God's Word and you can do whatever you want? That you view Scripture in such a way, twist it in just enough way that you get what you want? 
living your life according to your own intuition instead of according to the clarity of Scripture? Is this what you're doing? Isn't this exactly what Satan does when he's tempting Jesus in the wilderness? Doesn't he use Scripture to try to tempt Jesus to sin? Jesus, he then accuses Satan of tempting God, but here, what does Ahaz do? He is, he is accusing God of tempting him. The sin of testing God. If, if you're fearful of the, the sin of testing God, it is this, unbelief. It's the sin of unbelief. If you are scared, if you are terrified of the, of the sin of, ten, of testing God or tempting God, it is the sin of unbelief. Ahaz, he does not ask for a sign. He refuses. He will not do it. He, he, he presents this false humility of, oh, I can't, I can't ask God for a sign. Scripture says not to do that. Even though the prophet of God is saying, ask for it and he'll give it. He doesn't ask for a sign, but he does ask for help. Help from who? The Assyrian king. Not from God. And because of this refusal to ask God for help and his alliance with the king of Assyria, Ahaz then, later on, creates idols to be worshipped, just like the Assyrians were doing. He will shut the temple doors. He will put out the lamps in the temple. He will stop the offerings and the, of incense and the sacrifices in the temple. This is what will happen to your worship if you do not trust the Lord. There will be no more worship. This is what happens to Ahaz. This is what happens to Judah. In verses 13 and 14, there's a hopefulness and a sign from God. But now, this sign of hopefulness actually turns to a threat in the promise that God is making. Notice the change of association that happens from verse 11 to verse 13. Notice the words that change here from your God to my God. Ahaz, your God wants to do this. He rejects it. And then, 13, we have my God. Ahaz's lack of faith has consequences. Your lack of faith will have consequences. The Lord is no longer going to be for him or available to him, but the Lord now is going to be actually against him. This goes back to like chapter 1 right, of Isaiah. This is true of our Lord Jesus, who will bring grace for those who have faith, but will be a confirmation of judgment to those that reject him, that do not believe, that do not have faith. Now, if you look at verse 14, this is obviously the most famous verse out of this, this chapter and really one of the top ones out of the whole book of Isaiah. And what Ahaz refused to ask the Lord for is still going to happen in spite of him. Remember that Isaiah, he had brought along his son. His son, his name means a remnant shall return. He's a visual aid for the promise that God was going to make. This is actually like theater on display for Ahaz. The Ahaz can physically see something, experience something of the promises of God. This is really what's going to happen for the whole nation of Judah. The word you that is used here in verse 14, it is actually in the plural form in the Hebrew, meaning that the sign is for 
Ahaz, but also for the whole nation. Isaiah's son is there to really emphasize God's point about his faithfulness to his covenant promises, and there's a certain future for the nation of Judah. Why is there a certainty for Judah? Why is there a certainty for the lineage of David? Because God promised. God made a covenant. Ahaz, he is one that comes from the lineage of David. He is one that follows in that bloodline, and God promises that the house of David will be preserved. So the sign is to assure and encourage Ahaz to trust in the Lord. But what does he do with it? He says, no, I will not. And his unbelief, it quote-unquote threatens God's plan. But Isaiah promises that even unbelief will not nullify the promises and purposes of God. It can't stop it. Verse 14 is, again, one of the most famous verses out of this out of this book, because of the obvious reference to Emmanuel, meaning God with us, which is picked up in the New Testament authors, like we read out of Matthew 1 this morning, in reference to Jesus Christ. Here in the context of Isaiah 7, Ahaz is being shown that God has been with them. He has been with them. He is with them. He will be with them. But Ahaz did not believe that God was with them. He didn't believe that to be true before, presently, or in the future. The questions really have been plentiful in, in reference to verse 14. As scholars kind of debate what happened in the scenario, uh, was this prophecy given in, in any kind of completion in Ahaz's day? Was it only future promises that were referring to Jesus, as the New Testament authors pick up on? Well, it, it seems to be that this prophecy, like many other prophecies in Scripture, are a foreshadowing of a full fulfillment of the prophecy. Isaiah tells him that Ahaz's lifetime, he will experience an actual child being born and given the name Emmanuel. Now, now we know whenever Jesus was born, he was given the name Jesus or Yeshua in the Hebrew, which in the, from Greek to, he, to English translates Jesus. Old Testament-wise, Hebrew to English translates to Joshua. He's not named Emmanuel, but we do know about Jesus. He is God in the flesh. So God is with us. So the prophecy here in Isaiah is not saying that God is going to be with you in an actual child like the future fulfillment of this will be when Jesus comes. But God has always been with you. He is currently with you. The word in the Hebrew here that is used also in this verse Alma is translated as virgin here. It can also mean a a young woman or a woman of marriageable age, which would then insinuate her virginity as well. So Isaiah's prophecy about a child being born to a virgin would be brought into this fullest meaning in the supernatural virgin birth of Jesus Christ. King Ahaz, he is likely going to see an unmarried woman Become married, give birth to a child, a son, and naming him Emmanuel. An unusual name, but probably not an uncommon name. The immediate fulfillment of this prophecy will happen right in front of Ahaz, revealing that God has been present the whole time. He has not been distant. He has not been aloof somewhere. He has been with them, and he is with them, and he should have been trusted. And this child 
and his normal development, it will be like a countdown clock for Ahaz to see the destruction that God promised for these two forces of Israel and Aram coming against Judah. In verses 15 and 16, there's references of the stages of development in childhood, likely the span of 12 to 13 years, which just so happens to be, coincidentally or providentially, the same time frame that it took for Israel and Aram to be completely laid flat. They are ruined by the year 722 B.C., neatly, precisely 12 years. It's exactly what God promises in 15 and 16 in the birth of this son, giving a countdown clock for what's going to happen. In verse 15, there's a reference to curds and honey. Now, a lot of times this, this gets kind of misunderstood as what this is insinuating. It's not insinuating wealth and prosperity here like it does back in Exodus. We're talking about the land, of, land flowing with milk and honey. This is actually, actually a reference to the food of the poor. And we see this later on. If you look at verse 22 here in a moment, you'll see this idea play out. Again, another foreshadowing of the Messiah, Jesus, to come. But the immediate implications reflect that poverty is coming for the nation. With the Messiah coming, the, the Emmanuel coming in Jesus, he is born into poverty. He is born to Mary and Joseph. Not of wealth or prominence, but into poverty. But the immediate, the immediate fulfillment of this is proving something and what's going to happen to the nation. They are going to be made poor. Let's look at the second point that comes out of the end of this chapter, and this is the, uh, the results of saving yourself. Look at verses 17 through 25. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the crevices, uh, clefts of the rocks, in all the thorn bushes, in all the pastures. In that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet. It will sweep away with beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land with the, will be briars and thorns." As for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. This is an example of what happens. What is the result of you trying to save yourself? Ahaz believed in himself. He believed in his plan. He believed that he could do it. He didn't need God. I don't need you. I, I know where the weakness is. I know how vulnerable I am. I can fix that. God says, ask for a sign. I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you. Trust me, Ahaz refuses. He trusts in himself, and the result of such thinking and behavior will have a disastrous consequence. 
because King Ahaz, he will make an alliance with the king of Assyria, which will then start a chain of events through history where Judah will end. In verses 8 through 25, there are further warnings that are, that are given to Ahaz of what happens when you reject God and you trust in yourself. It tells us that every place will be infested. It will be overrun by invaders. So the, the whistling for the fly and the bees to show up, this is not uh, literally meaning insects are going to come into the, into the place, but as in invaders from all over will come and overrun uh, the, the nation of Judah. We're also told here in these verses that the economy is going to crash. The land is going to be overgrown because of the lack of people that are left there. Again, the idea of, of curds and honey will be in the land because there's nothing else to eat. Trying to save yourself will only leave you bankrupt and at a loss. Spiritually, without Jesus, this is what you are. You are bankrupt and you are lost without Him. You have nothing to trust in. Again, you can try all the things that people have been trying to do for thousands of years to save themselves from a holy God, and it hasn't worked. You can make plans, you can organize your life in such an efficient way, but it will not work against a holy God. This is a warning to all, all that Ahaz, maybe has, you have the same spirit of Ahaz in this room. This is a warning to all of us that have that kind of thinking like Ahaz. Trying to save ourselves by our works or maybe by our parents' works or our grandparents' works, it doesn't work. There's only one who should be trusted. Only one who should be trusted. And this one has given you a sign. There's two parts to this sign. Two parts. There's an empty cross and an empty grave. This is the sign that has been given to us. He is not on the cross anymore. And He's also not in the grave. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Your sins have been atoned for, and the grave is not to be feared. Why? Because He has risen. If you put your full trust in Jesus as Lord, you will be saved. That's a guarantee. That's a decree from God Himself. If you trust in Him, you will be saved. Let's end this morning with a couple of reflection questions. One being, how is God calling me to trust Him today? Today, right now, how, how is He calling you to trust Him? And the second, at the other end of things, the other end of the spectrum, how is God calling me to not trust myself Trusting in Jesus is a reality that has real implications and impact into your daily life. Not simply your future life. And if you're not trusting Him in your daily life, why do you think you are actually trusting Him with your future life? See the disconnect? So let these two questions motivate you in prayer how is God calling me to trust Him today? How is God calling me not to trust myself? Let's spend just a few moments in reflection on these truths. Then I'll pray for us and we'll sing one final song together.